Well, hello and welcome to another edition of Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham, where Team Needham discusses everything healthcare. I'm your host, Sean Needham, and my wonderful wife will be joining me shortly. Today, I am super excited to have Lindsay Elmore on the podcast. She is a fellow pharmacist, and we're going to be talking about high cholesterol and statins. And um, while she is getting logged in, I just wanted to mention a few things about it. Um, Janet and I, I'm speaking for Janet, and she will chime in a little bit later. Um, We have questioned statins and their ability to decrease cardiovascular disease for a while now. Um, Not only have we questioned the studies, but we've also just been rational about it. Um, So statins, some of the statins, Janet, name some of the statins that are out there. Um, Lipitor, Mevacor, Pravacol, Pravacol, um, and the, there's Zocor. yeah, there's newer ones. All in, anything in the generic name that ends in statin is usually what we're talking about. Yeah, so, so. lovastatin, atorvastatin. Um, so we've been told that cholesterol is the enemy. And go ahead, Lindsay. L- l- go ahead, you had to log Lindsay in. Hello, Lindsay. Welcome to our show. We were just talking about cholesterol and statins, and and um, go ahead and introduce yourself. Hi there. My name is Dr. Lindsay Elmore. I am a chemist and a pharmacist. And about 10 years ago, I kind of took a hard left turn out of traditional pharmacy everything and started learning more about natural wellness. Yeah. And Jen and I were, you know, we're kind of the same, uh, on the same boat. We, we took a turn quite a few years before that. Um, and one of the drugs that we first started questioning were, were, were statins. I mean, Janet loves to call it vitamin statin, and everybody yeah. should be on vitamin statin. And, you know, we were told in pharmacy school about, about how bad cholesterol was, and they started lowering the numbers. And anytime you see drug companies, you know, have a number to treat, and they keep lowering that number, and then everybody else keeps getting on more drugs, I think it's something that we should question. Um, so, you know, our opinion is I, I don't think statins work at all. And here's my rational thought about that. If statins decrease cardiovascular disease, then how – and they've been out over 30 years, then how come cardiovascular disease is an all-time killer for Americans? You go. I mean, to me, the fact that we have so many statins, it's not just about lowering that LDL. I think what this brings up is this concept of, in pharmacy, what's called dose versus poems, right? When we are so focused on the number, and we got to bring the number down, this is a disease-oriented endpoint. The problem is, you don't care if your LDL is 150, 100, 90, 70, whatever the number is. What you care about is do you have a heart attack, a stroke, or die? This is a patient-oriented endpoint that matters. And so what we've done is we've been chasing our tail, going we've got to chase the number instead of chasing are we actually preventing heart attacks, strokes, and death. And unfortunately, in a lot of ways, we're not able to show that with the data, especially in certain populations. Yeah, I agree 100%. Even when you look at the studies, I think um, you have to look about absolute risk versus relative risk. And they will tell us in pharmacy school, you know, oh, well, statins decrease the risk by 50% of, of, of cardiovascular disease. Well, that's 
not absolute risk, that's relative risk. So out of 100 people, it might have prevented one heart attack. Well, that's 1% effective. Um, whereas if two people in the placebo group had a heart attack and one person in the treatment group had a heart attack, they say it decreased it by 50%, when really in reality, it decreased heart attacks by 1% overall, absolute risk. Well, we see that in the original Lipitor ad that was so splashy and came out and, 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 you know, Lipitor reduces the risk of heart attack by 36%. Asterix, asterix. And then if you look down at the bottom, it clearly shows that if you truly compare the two groups, 3% of patients taking placebo had a heart attack compared to 2% taking Lipitor. That means there's only an absolute risk reduction of 1%. And what you're bringing up is another kind of cool concept that we talk about in pharmacy, which is a number needed to treat with a number needed to harm. And so what we also have to look at is, okay, we prevented 1% of people from having a heart attack. But how many people suffered rhabdomyolysis? How many people had CoQ10 depletion? How many people had just muscle cramps, weakness that prevented them from being able to work out and exercise? So what we need to look for without going into the math is we need this really high number needed to treat with this really low number needed to harm versus if you have like a number needed to harm that's very, very high and a number needed to treat that's very, very low, those drugs are intrinsically more dangerous. And so we we have to look even a little bit deeper because it's like, okay, so you prevented one person from having this adverse heart attack, but how many people suffered some sort of morbidity because of it? And let's not forget about liver failure. Mm-hmm. Remember, you know, Baycol, one of the statins was pulled off the market because of liver failure. My personal opinion is I think all of them caused that same problem. Baycall just didn't have the money behind it to keep it on the market. That's really all it was. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shift Please. gears on you guys a little bit. So being on the front line with patients and counseling them, you'd be surprised how many people just stop on their own because they feel like crap. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're not being listened to. It's like, you have to take this and you have to do this and you have to do that, but they're not being listened to. So I really think it's underreported. I I, I think that these side effects are are going underreported to, you know, many times over. And, And not only that, but, you know, since, since we were taught this, you know, 30 some years ago, you know, wouldn't we see in our population some healthier people? Like, wh- why Why are we just adding more drugs and more drugs and people aren't as healthy? So if statin was the answer, we, we should see some different outcomes, whether it would be, you know, their cholesterol is lower and there's less heart attacks or the person themselves is physically healthier. But I, I'm not seeing that. No. And Wayne Bailey just commented, one of our loyal listeners and viewers, he said, you know, you all just make sense. And really, to me, it's just let's answer the rational question. Stans have been out for over 35 years. I think Mevacor Lovastatin came out in like 1987. So they've been out for over 35 years. Heart attacks and strokes are still the number one killer of Americans. Statins and every and so many people are on a statin. Statins aren't working. That is just a rational question. Answer that question, cardiologists that prescribe statins. 
I mean, do I, do I, do I think that statins work to lower cholesterol? Absolutely. They are great at lowering cholesterol. I just don't think that they work to decrease cardiovascular disease. I mean, okay, you bring up a couple of good points. And the first thing that scares me the most is that you you were talking about underreporting of side effects, okay? So underreporting of side effects is a very, very big deal. And a part of the reason I think that side effects are underreported is because people aren't told what side effects to look out for. Like I was talking with a colleague this morning because we've been we've been creating new content and and I said, "Ooh, ooh, I know what we should do next. Why don't we highlight the singular data that is coming out?" And People, because if, if you don't know, Singular is an asthma and allergy medication. It was heralded as like the greatest um, transformation, greatest breakthrough that's ever going to be in the treatment of asthma and allergy. And we saw in original advertisements that Merck said that the side effect profile was similar to a sugar pill. Well, fast forward 20 years, we now have huge amounts of depression, neuropsychiatric disturbances. And then some researchers start researching it for Alzheimer's disease and were like, Whoa, 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 Merck. This drug is widely distributed in the brain. We've seen it very quickly start causing these uh, these cognitive problems and these neuropsychiatric problems. My colleague that I was talking to is on this med. And nobody had ever told him, hey, if you start to experience sadness or depression or mood swings or whatever that are abnormal for you, you know, that's something that I think is so important. If you start taking a statin medicine and your doctor is downplaying like your muscle pains or your muscle weaknesses or, you know, that that urine that just doesn't look like it used to, or maybe it just doesn't quite smell like it used to, whatever it is, they may tell you that is normal. And I want you to gain that internal power to say, Doc, this is not normal for me. This is not normal right. for me. It may be normal for some of your other patients to have these muscle cramps, but this is not for me. The other thing that gets me is nobody talks about the origins of statins. Statins actually began as a natural product. And one of the great things about natural products is that that is distinctly different from drugs. When, when you use a drug, you get this one, maybe two compounds that goes and does this one specific thing, this one specific receptor, and that's all that it can do. When you have natural products, such as red yeast rice, which was where lovastatin was originally extracted from, you also get all of the other phytochemicals, all of the other phytonutrients that maybe there's a little bit of CoQ10 in there that is offsetting some of the side effects. And the last thing I'll say is when pharmacists in Japan dispense statin medications, they are required by law to also dispense CoQ10. I think it's a travesty in this country that we have so many people on statins that are suffering from muscle cramps and weaknesses and have not simply been educated that the most likely mechanism of action is a CoQ10 depletion, which can be rapidly treated with a simple dose of a couple hundred milligrams of CoQ10 a day. Yeah, it's that simple. And, you know, speaking of, you know, isolating lobostatin from red yeast rice is that's the paradox of when we try to take a plant that's worked for centuries, you know, um, and we try to, we try to isolate the active ingredient out of it or whatever that, whatever that is. Well, we don't know. We don't know. We only, so we're looking for something, but you know, I think the great example is white willow bark. You know, uh, uh, bear bear pharmaceuticals isolated acetylsalicylic acid 
aspirin from white willow bark back in the 1800s. It was one of the first patented medications. And at the time, you know, white willow bark was used in teas for inflammation, for pain, for fevers, and there were no side effects. But lo and behold, when Bayer Pharmaceuticals isolates um, aspirin out of there, because that's what we think the active ingredient is, people get GI bleeds, people get tinnitus, um, People get rape syndrome. Exactly. Kinds of things. And so there might be something else in that plant that not, not only decreases the side effect, but maybe works synergistically with something else where it doesn't need as high a dose to actually work. So there's a paradox when we try to isolate a drug from a plant, which most drugs come from some kind of plant source originally there's always more side effects because we don't know what we don't know to look for. So we try to find the active ingredient, but is it really the active ingredient? So anyway. Well, let me give you some even more direct examples of that. I mean, yeah, white willow bark and aspirin, great example. But look at the difference between when humans consumed sugar cane versus processed refined (laughs) sugar and high fructose corn syrup. Look at the difference in the millennia of indigenous tribes that that have ingested coca tea versus the consumption of refined cocaine. To that yeah. extent, look at yeah. the generations of consumption of poppy extract yep. versus turning it into morphine, turning it into heroin. We went a long way in human history. It wasn't until yeah. we got to our synthetics and our semi-synthetic opioids that we really started going oh crap, this is a major problem and a major shift. We see the exact same discussion even evolving right now with burning and combusting marijuana versus having just isolated Delta 9 THC and now the super synthesized Delta 8 THC, which we have no evidence will be safe long-term. So I'm going to shift this a little bit because... One of my concerns has been for for a lot of my patients is, you know, breast milk is so full of fat, right? And we need that for that development of the brain and, and the tissue of the body. And, you know, every cell in our body also requires cholesterol. So what are we doing to so many people across our nation and other nations by putting something in their body that's destroying the cell structure and also the nutrients that we need for our, our basic function and biology. Right. So to me, I feel like we are making um, dementia and Alzheimer's huge in our nation because we've been doing vitamin statins for so long. I mean, what are we doing? And, And I, I don't know, there's probably other people that have thoughts about this, but I mean, to me, that's a huge concern. It's that's not only my big concern when it comes to depleting statin medication or depleting cholesterol in the body. When you deplete cholesterol in the body, you don't only alter development as well as cellular structure. The other thing that you completely destroy is your body's ability to make steroid hormones. If you look at cholesterol, it is the great grandfather of estrogen, testosterone, and progesterone. So if you're inhibiting your cholesterol, you also are inhibiting your pregnenolone. You are also altering your ability to manage your salt balance because that's where all of our minerals corticoids come from Mm -hmm. as well. And so you're throwing off 
basically the, the entire operating system right. of the body gets altered. And we also see that when we artificially deflate cholesterol to really low levels, we're talking 30, we start mm-hmm. to see the appearance of new onset cancers. And I have to wonder if that is related to the alterations in cellular structure that we are creating by preventing our body from having this fluid kind of squishy membrane that helps to hold the phospholipid bilayer of the cell together and is really important for maintaining where some of our porous channels are, where our electrical conductivity is. I also question, you know, we started our conversation by saying that you have to look at when governmental agencies are continuing to lower cholesterol goals. Like, Who is writing the AHA, ACC guidelines? How do they get endorsed by the CDC? Well, if you look at the 2014 guidelines, eight out of the 10 writers had direct ties to industry, including direct pharmaceutical companies that sold statin. And there's a New York Times op-ed that I love called Stop Giving Patients So Many Statins. And if you really want to take a deep dive into this, John John Abramson writes an amazing book about, about, and there's one chapter on statins. It's called Sickening. And there's an entire section about just how duped women have gotten about the number of statins that we actually need. Because if we look at the ASCOT trial, the ASCOT trial showed us that if they had actually stratified women out of separate from men in the analysis. Women given statin medications as primary prevention, so these are women who have never had a heart attack or a stroke, as primary prevention tended to have more heart attacks and strokes when given statins versus women who were not given statins. And still, the ASCOT trial was used in the guideline research committees, um, it was used to help again lower the cholesterol goal. That does it, not compute. No, yeah. it's amazing how you, these studies are numerous, and, and more and more are coming out. It, it's amazing to me that doctors, especially cardiologists, I mean, I, I cannot tell you the amount of cardiologists and that will prescribe a statin for a 90 year old person that is, you know, I mean, you think, you think about that. Does that, does that make rational sense at all? It's the same thing as my great grandmother. When my great grandmother was 93 years old in a nursing home, she was restless at night, couldn't sleep. And my family was like, can we give her an Ativan? And the doc says, what if she gets addicted? Yeah. Um, Right. I I know. know. We just, we don't critically think in medicine anymore. Right. I, I yeah. mean, seriously, you know, and speaking of some of these side effects you're talking about, you talk, we talked about dementia, um, that statins could, can cause that because it decreased cholesterol. Um, we talked about um, decrease your hormones, which can also lead to osteoporosis. We talked about how it can also lead to, you talk about singular and depression and stuff. Remember, these are all things that these drugs cause, side effects, and yet big pharma has a solution for them. So, oh, you're depressed. Well, let's not worry about the drug you're on that's causing depression. Let's just prescribe you Prozac or, oh, you got osteoporosis. That's okay. We, we understand that statins might have caused it because it decreased your hormone, hormones, but we, we got Fosamax or whatever that drug is, Prolia or Forteo. There's always a drug that, that big pharma has to treat the side effects that it caused in the first place. You go. 
You know, it is so true. And and it really goes back to the very origins of pharmacy, where it's like, yeah, we have penicillin, but some people are going to have allergies and let's figure out what to do about that. But when you think that the medicine is the cure, that's the problem. That's the problem. I am fully on board that medicines and it can be excellent bridges. They can be absolutely excellent bridges, but they are not the cure. And if every time you go to the doctor, you say, hey, I'm having this side effect and it's causing this and it's mounting on this and it's mounting on this. This is where we end up with polypharmacy. And polypharmacy is one of the largest causes of morbidity and oftentimes mortality in patients. It's horrifying, but by some estimates, and it's not everybody, not everybody agrees with this number, but by some estimates, known medication side effects are are the number three cause of morbidity and mortality in the United States. We need to start looking not for the newest and the latest and the greatest. We need to start looking for what do we know that is actually tried and true to do what it says it's going to do and not be something that we rely on every single day. Listen, I am... Absolutely. Like, you think I'm going to vote to take insulin off the market? You're insane. An albuterol inhaler? Absolutely no way. But humans are not designed to be an endless litany of medications and injections from birth to death. That's not how we're supposed to live. And the average adult being on six medications is not, it's common, but it's not normal. This is something that has been normal for what? 50 years? 60 years? Right. Right. So Uh, it's gotten worse over the last 20. So whatever happened to, and and you're going to help us with this, I'm sure. Whatever happened to like, let's teach somebody how to change a lifestyle or something that they need to change in, in everyday habits. That's going to have long-term benefits with out these side effects and not adding on another drug. The problem with going to true lifestyle medicine is we don't have a society that's conducive to it anymore. We have we have soil that is deplete of nutrients. We have big agra that is that is dominating our food supply. I interviewed Dr. Joan Ifland on my podcast and she describes how we are all effectively at this point 50 years into processed foods. We're all addicted to processed foods. And so the only thing that we can do is encourage people to change your mind, change your mind about how you are going to approach things because there's not an institution that is going to teach you how to eat in a way that is actually going to make you healthy. I saw something, I saw something the other day that was like, you know, we think that eating hamburgers and hot dogs and potato chips and drinking soda is normal. And we think that eating lettuce and quinoa and drinking reverse osmosis water is a diet. We need to shift our thinking. We also need to understand that we cannot become so obsessive compulsive about living naturally and living healthfully that life becomes, it it becomes, it becomes where it lacks 
joy. We have to do our best and doing our best is not like, okay, I need everybody to start waking up at 5 a.m. tomorrow and get out in your sun, get grounding, start planting plants and go vegan, only eat raw meat, whatever. It's not about doing it all at once and being overwhelmed. It's about showing up day after day and just doing one more thing, doing one more thing. Can you exercise for one more minute today? Um, Can you, I love BJ Fogg, the power of one, you know, you floss one tooth. You're a person that flosses. You eat one bite of vegetables. You're a person that eats vegetables. And so if you're listening to this and you're like, oh my gosh, I am that person on the hamster wheel. You first have to say, I am going to make my mind up to do one thing better each day. And why does the system not teach this? Because there's no incentive. You know, there's no incentive for, um, there's no incentive for, uh, for Bear, who really owns the global chemical supply chain for big agra. There's no incentive for Bayer to tell you that glyphosate is dangerous. There's no incentive for big agra to tell you how dirty and disgusting the meat that you're eating is. You simply have to go out there and get more curious about what are other human beings doing in the lives around you that are like, wow, They're like doing a little bit of regenerative agriculture just in their backyard. Let me go learn something about that. Wow. So-and-so has lost five pounds in a month because she just got up and started walking. I wonder if she'd let me do that too. We've got to get curious about what the individuals in our lives are doing versus what we are being told to do by institutions. Uh, that, that you are so, so correct, Lindsay, and thank you for that wisdom. Uh, let's read this from one of our, she's at, Kristen is actually a nurse, and what's your thoughts on someone who has had high cholesterol since early 20s, and it really is danger to the heart, uh, being diet and supplements have made the difference. Uh, told my MD husband who has had high cholesterol since t- 23, his walking time bomb. My thoughts are not because needs to be addressed by a functional provider. So I'll, I'll tell you what my answer is to that. I, I don't think cholesterol has anything to do with, with um, cardiovascular disease, anything. And first of all, you didn't um, say how high the cholesterol was. Let's, let's remember, let, let's just, let's be rational about how we look at cholesterol and how we look at numbers in general. And Lindsay talked about it early on in this podcast is, you know, we look at these numbers. Let, let's say this. I mean, if I go to the doctor and my cholesterol is 200, Mr. Needham, you're doing great. If my cholesterol is 201, I need a statin. I mean, mm-hmm. that's how stupid the system is. And literally, I mean it. Um, and that's literally how doctors don't critically think. Uh, if I was went to a traditional cardiologist, that's exactly what they would tell me. 200 is fine. 201 is bad. So what is that number? Um, you know, was your cholesterol high because it's 223? Well, okay, but what are your other risk factors? First of all, you're 23 years old. You know, I think I, you know, you have a very low incidence of 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 cholesterol. And Jen and I were talking about it last night to prep for this podcast. Let's say this. Let's just make a. Let, let's just let's make a, 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 a. You know, an extreme example. If we tested a baby's cholesterol, a newborn baby's cholesterol, and the cholesterol was 300, would we put them on a statin? 
So when do we? When they're 10? When they're 15? When they're 25? I mean, serious, that's, that's a serious question. It's not about cholesterol. Now, there are some metabolic issues that, you know, might be way out of balance when people have cholesterols off the chart. But I'll also say this. I have known family members um, that have had cholesterols in the four to five hundreds. They lived into their 90s. They never died of cardiovascular disease. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. Seriously. I mean, here's the thing. Is is familial hypercholesterolemia a thing? Yes. If I had a 20-year-old in my office and they had, you know, a really high cholesterol, I would be thinking like probably they've got some genetics going on there. My question would be, how long did your great-grandpa and your grandpa live? Because if <laughs> yeah. they died when they were 40, I'd probably be more aggressive. If they died of natural causes when they were 85, I'd be like, meh, maybe, maybe right. we worry about this, right. whatever. But here's another thing. Everybody looks for APOE. If you're going to look at cholesterol levels and actually look at what is the portion of cholesterol that may actually have something to do with cardiovascular disease, because I think time has clearly shown that it's not LDL. I think that we've gotten more sophisticated to say, well, maybe it's LDL particle size. Well, when your particle size is smaller, it's more dangerous versus larger. It's less dangerous. Okay. We can look at that, but we need to be looking at ApoB. And nobody is measuring ApoB. And ApoB is kind of like the transporter that can actually potentially do some damage. But we also have to look at uric acid, which uric acid is typically only associated with gout. But uric acid levels have been steadily creeping up over the source of years and years before you have cardiovascular disease. And guess what? You don't get uric acid from the purine-rich foods that we were once taught. You get uric acid buildup because you eat too much fructose. You eat too much sugar. And if you really want to dig into what I think is probably a much bigger culprit of cardiovascular disease um, than fat and cholesterol is sugar. And there's a great chapter in David Michael's book, uh, The Triumph of Doubt. And there is also an excellent podcast called Big Sugar that will infuriate you about just what industry has done to tap down the fact that the more sugar that you eat, the more cardiovascular disease ridden that you become because you drive up uric acid levels. In my opinion, cholesterol levels matter when there is concomitant inflammation. Cholesterol just hanging around being a cholesterol yeah. particle is just a cholesterol particle hanging around. It's when it gets together with pro-inflammatory mediators that then cause it to become unstable. Because what is cholesterol actually trying to do in your vasculature? It's actually trying to like soothe it. It's trying to put a balm on it. But if you keep puffing up inflammatory mediators inside of the vasculature that you get from things like TMAO, like, um, 
like elevated levels of uric acid, like abnormally functioning APOE enzymes, that's when you start to get those foam cells that cause these plaques that expand. But it's not the cholesterol's fault that it's built up. It's the inflammatory process underneath. And the cholesterol is like trying to be like, I've got you, just calm down. I've got you. And so we've missed the boat on addressing inflammation when if we were simply to address that, we might be in better shape in addressing cardiovascular disease. Because if you address inflammation, you're addressing a lot of different root causes of disease because all the root causes of disease cause inflammation. And so we got to go back down to all the root causes of disease and get those back in line. And Mark Keith made a great comment that we just streamed about testing HSCRP, which is a marker of inflammation, because that's probably one of the most important ones. And when it comes to cardiovascular disease and a coronary, ar- a coronary artery scan, I think uh, is important too. There's other developments out there in the MCG test. We interviewed a guy, um, Carl Lambert, who does the MCG test to to look at um, cardiovascular risk long term, um, I, I I do I I'm agree with you 100. It, it's not it's not about cholesterol and you know just the thought about you know uric acid. You talk about uric acid and I don't know what you were taught in farm school, but we were taught people that have gout, you know, too much uric acid, tell them not to eat red meat. And no. don't eat organ meat, and don't yeah. eat, no. and don't drink red wine, and don't uh, right. drink beer, yeah. and right. you know, don't eat butter. <laughs> Yeah. Now, now I get it. You know, I would say if they're drinking a whole bunch of red wine, they're drinking a whole bunch of beer, I would probably stay back off that because, you know, alcohol is a poison, period. Um, some people don't want to admit that, but it's true. But let's think about the red meat thing and uric acid. Does it make sense that red meat would cause us as humans to um, have, arthri- have, have gout, gouty arthritis, um, when we've been eating red meat for centuries? I mean, does it make sense? It doesn't make sense at all. And I'm finally waking up to this. Like, how did I buy this stuff in pharmacy school? Oh, you got gout. You got to stay away from red meat. Seriously? That doesn't make sense at all. We wouldn't, everybody would have had gout 300 years ago. I mean, yeah. seriously. Well, again, uric acid crystals probably only matter in the setting of in inflammation. And the other thing too, that I think about that is distinctly different is even if you ate a ton of meat, guess what you were doing all day? Exercising, walking, moving, propelling your body. You know, it, I, I mean, we used to move like, you know, three to five miles a day just because it was what we had to do to get around. Probably more than that. Actually, probably more than that. Probably. Probably maybe 12 would be, would be reasonable, especially if you're having to like go half a mile, a mile down to the river to collect water, whatever it is before the advent of, of cities and sanitation. And so, you know, we, we were built, humans were built to be in perpetual motion, right? Part of the reason that we live such dangerous lifestyles now is because we are not in perpetual motion. We are in stagnancy. We are seated. We, you know, even just small things that we don't think about, um, you know, just sitting on a bouncy ball instead of sitting in a chair, getting a walking desk. Like there are ways to get intentional movement into your day. And the best part is studies have really shown that 
any amount of exercise is beneficial. If you do one minute of exercise a couple times a day, that's better than doing nothing, you know? And studies have also shown that like, it doesn't take this whole thing of like the American Cardiology Association, like you got to work out 30 minutes a week, 30 minutes a day, three to five times a week. That is so intimidating to some people that it seems insurmountable, But the fact of the matter is, it's not that our ancestral foods have become more dangerous. It's that our ancestral foods have not been matched with our ancestral behaviors. And therefore, they have become this like... Well, I didn't work my uric crystal. I didn't work my uric acid crystals out of my joints, and now they're there. Versus, like, okay, we were just moving around, getting things going. You think about that traditional image of the person with gout. They're morbidly obese and are just kind of lounging all day. Well, unfortunately, that's what like 40, 50, 60, 70 percent of the U.S. population just does on a day to day basis. Well, and, you know, when you think back about just ancestrally speaking, um, you know, we were we were meant to move. And um, when we – so we either chased an animal or we, we went and we picked berries or we went and picked fruits and vegetables, whatever it was. We had to hunt and gather, right? And then um, when we did hunt, we, we had a meal for maybe a few days and we gorged ourselves. Well, now – we gorge ourselves every day and we have an unlimited food supply and we are good at storing fat because ancestrally speaking, we might not eat for a few days, big meals because we didn't have anything to eat. So we are good at storing fat as energy. And that's what the average American has done is they've stored fat as energy because they don't move enough. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, like I said, humans are meant to be in perpetual motion. And so like whatever that motion is, just do it. Right. I think we, um, I think we think of exercise and like, you know, exercise is good for your cardiovascular health. You know, exercise can help you avoid a statin because it's going to help you to manage your cholesterol levels, all the things. But we think of exercise as like getting on the treadmill and running a mile, but there are six different forms of exercise. And I just want you to play around and have fun with all of them. So, you know, we've got our, we've got our cardiovascular exercise, but you want to talk about the importance of strength training in preventing cardiometabolic disease and helping people to avoid not only statins, but I've arguably more importantly, the diabetes medications by building your muscle reservoir. Naughty mass. Exactly. And we also need to look at our balance, our mind-body exercises. Stretching is a form of exercise. And then we have to remember the activities of daily living. That counts. That counts. You know, don't get Instacart. Go to the grocery store and get that small amount of exercise. You know, vacuum your floors and, you know, I mean, just small little things each day. I think that classic example of take the stairs instead of the elevator, those things really do add up to an active lifestyle. Park on the perimeter of the parking lot. Yeah. Wherever you grocery yeah. shop, walk, walk further. You know, Jen and I were talking the other day about, you know, the, the gym industry, you know, even when I was in college in the 1990s, early 1990s, um, the gym industry was really just getting started. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, th- there were a few gyms, but nothing like there is now. Right. And you think about it, Lindsay, 50, 60, 70 years ago, th- there weren't such things as gyms. Not n- No. I mean, seriously, could you buy a treadmill 70 years ago? I don't know. Maybe you could. But, you know, could you buy a stationary bike 70 years ago? Probably not because you used a bike as your mode of transportation. I mean, it was, you know, we didn't have to actually create gyms and exercise until we quit moving in our daily lives. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to make exercise too complicated. I tell people that all the time. And like you say, with the cardiovascular, the American, um, the um, American Heart Association talking about intense exercise, three, 30 minutes, three times a week to a lot of people that would be intimidating. Here's what I tell people. Whatever you're doing now, if you just do more. So if you're doing nothing now, it's super easy. Go out and walk for two minutes, maybe one minute, mm-hmm. and then just add a minute every couple of weeks or whatever. In you know, fact, studies have shown that two minutes of walking after a meal is enough to blunt your blood glucose spike. So if you're somebody struggling with blood sugar or diabetes, two minutes of walking after a meal can help that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Lindsay, I hate to cut it short because we could talk for hours because we we're on the same page. We're going to have to have you on again. This is um, so fun. I yeah, love I love it. I love talking to pharmacists that are on the same page as us because it's just, it, we could go forever. So we're going to have you on again. As we wind this podcast up, um, tell us, Lindsay, what you have a passion for. At the moment, I have a passion for getting to the end of my life and knowing that I have done one of two things. I have either helped to bring drug pricing within 20% of all other wealthy nations. Um, We are the only wealthy country that does not have uh, governmental oversight of drug pricing and we get gouged for it. So bringing drug pricing in the United States within 20% of all other wealthy nations or working to make what is the Kefauer-Harris Amendment, which if you don't know Dr. Frances Kelsey, please go look her up. Huge influence, uh, prevented the drug thalidomide from coming to market. Because of her work, there was the introduction of the Kefauer-Harris Amendment, which forced drug companies to show that their products were safe and effective. And it has been systematically dismantled over the past 70 to 80 years. And so hashtag make Kefauer-Harris real again. Awesome. So if anybody has any questions or wants to get a hold of you, what's the best way to do that? You can go to lindsayelmore.com. You can find me at Lindsay Elmore on Instagram and um, Dr. Lindsay Elmore on TikTok and um, Pinterest and at Lindsay Elmore on Facebook. I love it. So, uh, Lindsay, thank you so much for being on our podcast and educating, helping us to reach our goal, which is to educate and empower individuals to take charge of their own health. So I really appreciate you being on. And listeners and viewers, thank you for tuning in to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Tune in Thursday. We will have a guest live in our Mosley Professional Pharmacy studio. Um, and he will be he's running for our local hospital board commission. So you don't want to miss out. Um, Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Tune in 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. Our midweek podcast Thursday. Thank you for tuning in. Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Thank you.